Our scripture reading for today comes from Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, they're like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Last week was Trinity Sunday, and we started a small mini-series on the means of grace. Last week, we celebrated after Pentecost the indwelling power of the Spirit that has indwelled the church. And the scripture that we found encouragement in spoke of the God of all comfort, that because of the indwelling power of the Spirit, we have resource and access to our loving Heavenly Father who is described as the God of all comfort, this comfort being not merely consoling, though, of course, comfort does involve consoling, but actually an energizing and an invigorating and a reviving. There's a strengthening. The image of God of all comfort is not like God handing a child an iPhone in a dentist's chair to sort of distract us from the pain of the moment. The God of all comfort is like one who comes alongside us as we're running a marathon and hands us a cup of water so that our body can be replenished, so that there's actually change going on inside us for the struggle. And so as we look at this text here this morning from Psalm chapter 1, we want to consider how this God of comfort gets the strength and nourishment to us. What are his means of grace? This week and next week, we're going to be contemplating uh, prayer and meditation. Prayer and meditation uh, on the word of God and the gift that it is uh, to us. And so as we look at this text, uh, we're going to open that up today. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis on prayer, on why he prayed. He said a lot of things about prayer, but one of the things that caught my eye in one of his writings was said this, I pray because need flows out of me all the time. Waking and sleeping, prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. And I think as we look at the image here in Psalm chapter 1, that's precisely what we get. There's a prayer that is changing us deeply and profoundly. Prayer and meditation are a means of God's grace, whereby he forges in us, His character and his strength and his peace. There is a stability in the soul that is given. There is a buoyancy to the spirit that keeps us from sinking in sorrow and sinking in the difficulty of struggles and of hard times. And even not only the struggles without, but the struggles of our own sin within us. And so as we look at uh, this psalm, this is the first of 150 psalms. And the the Psalter in the Bible is a book of prayers. Prayers and and songs. And the way that this first psalm sets up the other 149 is the other 149 psalms can be prayed and sung. And of course we could uh, pray that this would be the posture of our hearts. But this first psalm sets us up for the other 149. It's like a contemplation and a meditation in and of itself. The way that we understand the psalms is that though they are instructional in some ways, and there's different genres, some posture us for praise and some posture us for lament, and and some give voice to our pain and to our struggle, there are psalms that have tremendously dark language. Oh God, break the backs of my enemies, smash their teeth, grind them to dust. 
right? Like, and we can get to some language in the Psalms that we feel like we don't know what to do with. This is because we need to remember that the Psalms are prayers. They are giving you permission to go to God in brutal honesty about the pain and the sorrow and the suffering of your life. And the prayers are also giving us language around things that we would want to cry to God in the, the, the depths of our worry, anxiety, and, and, and sorrows. So the, the, the prayers, the Psalter and the deep provocative language that the other 149 Psalms give us is there intentionally. So that when we read Psalms like that, we don't say, yeah, that's right. And then we go and live that way towards our neighbor and say, you're our enemy and I, wanna, I want your teeth to break and I want to smash your spine into dust. That's not the purpose of the Psalms. They, all of the Psalms are directed toward God. They might inform the way we live loving and wise towards our neighbor. But that's why we would get into problems reading through the Psalms and saying, this is how I'm going to relate to my neighbor. Because some are going to be beautiful and some are going to be brutal. So you see, the beauty and the brutality of the language in the Psalms gives us that permission to direct it all towards God. And that's one of the means of his comfort. So God is not interested in his children being stoics. They sort of have a stiff upper lip through trials and sorrows, but that we can come to him with tremendous honesty. So I just wanted to give you that background on the book of the Psalms so that we can look at this first one that really sets us up for this meditation. In the Hebrew culture, meditation was to muse and to mutter. They would memorize the scriptures. They would mutter them over under their breath over and over repeated to themselves. And uh, this was part of the ancient practice of meditation and still is the practice of meditation for believers today because in contrast to various forms of transcendental meditation where step one is to empty the mind, in Christian biblical meditation, step one is not emptying the mind. You'll see step one is intensely filling the mind with God's word, with God's way, with God's nature, his character, what he has done, his goodness, his law. And so uh, this is where um, this, begin, this psalm begins uh, to posture us in this way. Some of us have gone through difficult times where we feel like we don't have any words. Somebody can ask you, how are you doing? And you're doing so terrible. You're like, where, where do you begin? I don't have words. So the psalms give us the words. We pray the words. You can find a psalm with the language and the energy and the emotion that depicts the sort of the pain, the struggle, the lament that you're, that you're going through. You can find one. And so this meditation of filling the mind is important because none of our hearts can find rest when they're in a free fall. And so when we're gla- grappling for words and what am I going to do and oh God, how are you going to navigate me through this? I need the words spoken to me, given, given to me. So there's deep and tremendous power in this, in this meditation. So this first psalm, it definitely applies to us. It's definitely informative and instruction, uh, it sort of provides instruction to us. But first and foremost, we need to know this psalm is not about us. In fact, none of the, scriptures is, none of the scripture is about us. It's certainly for us, certainly blesses us, renews us, but it's not about us. And as modern North, North, North Americans... We have a proclivity to narcissism, to read the Bible like everything is actually about us. It's about Christ. Jesus Christ is the righteous one of Psalm 1. When you look at the prerequisite for the blessed life, none of us are actually qualified for it. Never walked in the ways of the wicked, never stood 
and on the wrong side of things that are wicked. Never sat in the perspective of things that are wicked. The sinless one. This is Jesus. In Luke 24, after his resurrection, Jesus said explicitly on the road to Emmaus after he rose from the grave, he said, all scripture is concerning me. The Psalms, the law of Moses, the prophets, it's all concerning me. So when we start from this premise that this is about Jesus Christ, the righteous one of Psalm 1, this now liberates us to want to emulate the one who saved us in grace and uh, live in obedience and holiness as, you know, living out the new humanity so that we can come into greater congruence with the righteous one of Psalm 1. Because, of course, Jesus never walked in sin once. He never took a stand for sin once. And he never sat in a per- sinful perspective uh, once. He's the one who obeyed God's law perfectly, meditated on it day and night perfectly. And then he was judged as wicked. Even though he was perfectly righteous. And because he was judged as wicked for us, he stood under God's judgment so that you and I now get to sit here and be recipients of God's grace. And so as we recognize this as a good posturing for Psalm 1, I think we can get into uh, the imagery of it in a, in a really helpful and healthy way. Verse 3, you'll notice, gives us this picture of roots taking in water. And when roots are taking in water, that's a powerful metaphor because it's not merely knowing a truth and intellectual assent to various things that we believe are right and good and true. When, when roots, the image of a root taking in water means that something is changing. We're, we're making it a part of ourselves. We're bringing it into our very being. That what is objectively true about God's love and his mercy and his track record of saving grace. It's not just objective things that we believe, but they're now subjective things that we enjoy that carry us through those dark and sorrowful trials in our lives. It gives us strength to sustain us. You'll notice that um, the image here is drawing the word of God into us like water, and it's the law that's being drawn in. And that's an interesting uh, phrase, because you wouldn't think of the law law being very nourishing. Because when we see that word law, we just think of instructions, which of course includes that. But the book of the law, the Hebrew there would be Torah, right? So the Torah, the law, uh, what is the Hebrew Torah, the Hebrew scriptures? It is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So that does contain the Ten Commandments. So there is instruction that we're to meditate on. But before the instructions showed up, there's scandalous deliverance, saving from certain death in Egypt, constant provision, faithfulness towards people who are caused, you know, just insanely unfaithful. In the law of God, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if you go back even to the creation, what you get from the very nature of God is that he has, from the beginning been trying to give all that is God to all that is not God. This this incredible generosity and love and pursuit of this loving and caring father who loves his children. And so in the meditation of that, that does, of course, then include the wise guidance for our lives, the Ten Commandments, the law of God. But in, in meditating on all of this, there is nourishment because it is the gospel promise. It is the reminder that our very life is in God's hands. It is going through in, in those times when you're laying on your bed and you're staring at the ceiling and you're saying, what am I going to do tomorrow? How am I going to get through this? My heart is in my feet. You know, my, my throat is in my stomach. Everything's in the wrong place. What other, what are, what other organs can I rearrange in this? Um, you just, nothing is right. 
So what's going to recalibrate me in those moments? It's not just, say, oh, well, I've got to re- read the Ten Commandments. And that's going to make me feel better. And, and it might. But in, in the grand scheme of the law of God, it is who is he and what has he done? And how majestic is he? And how far above and transcendent is he over this problem that I'm dealing with on Monday? Outside me, inside me, in my body, in my mind, in my spirit. And may his greatness bring great rest to my heart and my soul to recalibrate me in this moment. Meditating on the law, the goodness, the grandeur of God. And as we do this, of course, here's how this means of grace begins to slow process of nourishment like water going into roots is that it begins to change us that more and more we very much want to live to the glory of the one who saved us in grace and that greater and greater congruence so that the righteous one at the beginning of psalm one over the course of our lives begins to describe us precisely because this is what our hearts want because to fall in love with the law of god is not oh boy do i ever love rules but to fall in love with the law of God is to fall in love with a king. We're not following mere rules, but following a king. And this is this re- reorienting uh, work in our hearts and our lives. And it lifts our very spirits and our minds. Meditation reshapes our reactions. It reshapes uh, our reactions because our reactions might come to us and feel very natural. But just because they're natural doesn't mean they're wise or loving or godly or good. It just means they're natural. They come to us naturally. And we, that's how we manage life and get through tense times, by just reacting by what comes naturally. The law of God does a nourishing and recalibrating work in you and I. I coach baseball right now. I've coached, I coached the little guys when Nigel was really little, and now I'm coaching these 19-year-olds, and, and Nigel's playing with these guys. And uh, there's one kid who has a very, very high strikeout rate. And then when he does actually connect with the ball, it's very weak. And so I watched him for about, I would say, 30 at-bats. And I was like, okay, I think I'm seeing a pattern of something that is not good here. So I went up to him in between one of the innings. And I said, hey, man, I've been watching you for the last, like, since the beginning of the season. And I'm wondering, listen, would you be open to... uh, would you open to me making a suggestion? I think there's something that you need to change here. And here's what he said to me. He said, as he was swinging the bat, he's like, nah, my swing feels natural. <laughs> it feels natural. If you mess with it, it's going to mess me up. And I thought, man, this is exactly like pastoring. <laughs> I have a suggestion. Something that I'm seeing that's incongruent with the wisdom of God's word. Before I'd ever say that to you, it's like even me looking in the mirror at myself. You know, as I meditate on God's word, I feel like God has a suggestion. And I'm like, nah. It can't, that can't be right because this feels so good. Well, yes, I'm sure it feels very naturally. And you're naturally bad. I mean, I, I didn't say it out loud. But I, I thought it, among other things. Uh, because I need to be sanctified. But many of us relate to the law, the wisdom of the scripture. We have moments where we relate to it that way. Yeah, but you don't understand. This is my temperament. 
you didn't understand. I took a personality test, and as you know, they are the gospel. I mean, once that, once that test spits out who you are, I mean, it's flawless. You know? Raise your hand if everybody you know uh, knows themselves with just incredible levels of accuracy. They just, they don't have any blind spots. Raise your hand. Yeah. Yeah, see, every, right. And then we take those tests about ourselves. That's all I'm going to say about that. So we need, we need the wisdom of God to do a deep renewal. Otherwise, we're very comfortable with our swing. And the culture is very happy to say, hey man, you do you. If you come across a, a, a scripture that conflicts with your core values as they relate to the way you should spend your time or generosity, the view that you have of the poor and of poverty, hey, you do you, man. Sexuality, Look, do not let anybody tell you. Don't let some 2,000-year-old book... Listen, the Bible is not old. It's eternal, and there's a difference. Right? If something is old, then sure, maybe it needs to be updated. But if God is God and his word is wise, and because he is eternal, then the wise guidance of his law is not old. It is eternal and true. And therefore, my incongruence with his wisdom is eternally out of date. It's not progress. And so the meditation reshapes our reactions. It Meditating on the goodness of God and his word, it reshapes the way we relate to God. It reshapes the way we posture ourselves before him in prayer. It reshapes the way that we react to others, our reactions to ourselves, our reaction to our own sin, our reaction to our world, our reaction to brokenness, our reactions and our frustration, our pain. I mean, this is the means of God's grace for us. He's saying, I'm not just going to stay distant and be like, hey, change and become holy. He indwells us with the power of his spirit and his spirit and word work mightily together to do this deep and beautiful, you know, powerful renewal. And it does take time. You know, if you have a, uh, if you have a plant that gets really dried out, and you just put a little bit of water in there, it doesn't pop up in 30 seconds. I mean, maybe if you have an Easter lily, it pops up pretty quickly. The Easter lily's drooping, you put a little water in the Easter lily, and you walk by five minutes later, and it looks, it's like, oh, thank you. And I know that because I know a lot about plants. I'm just kidding, because I basically live in a jungle that has furniture in it. So that's why I know that. <laughs> because Susan knows about plants, and I'm learning about plants by osmosis from her. But for most of us, we are like these... We go through these dry times, and I've been doing this for 27 years, and I know that even as I'm preaching this, and I'm like trying to gently go through it, that there's, there's, there's like emotional reactions even in the sermon. People are like, oh man, I tried, I tried Bible studies, I tried devotions, I've tried everything, it doesn't work. I tried reading my Bible, I tried prayer, it doesn't work. It's not a conversation about something um, working and not working. It's a conversation about an ongoing slow and beautiful nourishment of your soul. You can't look at it like, well, I watered myself for two weeks by reading, you know, a little bit of the Bible and it didn't work. What does that even mean? 
the means of God's grace for us is that as it becomes a rhythm and a liturgy in our life, it, it does renewal in you. If I asked you what you ate for breakfast 14 Thursdays ago, unless you're a robot, you probably don't know what you ate, and yet it nourished you. And we don't say, I can't remember what I keep eating for dinner 16 Thursdays ago. It must not be doing any good in my body. No, you are being nourished. So there, but as North Americans, we're so results-oriented that sometimes we can be like, well, I've got this problem, and I need God to do this thing, and I'm kind of freaked out about it, or I need this thing to change. And so I prayed for three weeks, and I also started reading my Bible, but nothing seemed to shift, so I guess the thing doesn't work. I mean, just process the, if you're a Christian, process the implications of that for a minute. God Almighty has provided something, and then we're saying it doesn't work. So if we're saying, if that was true, what else is there? But the good news is, my friends, is that this is how the God of comfort has given his means of grace to you. And that his word would nourish you. And not that we come away from the sermon today uh, feeling condemned. My hope for you is that for some of you, this word would be quite, con- quite confirming. And that you would enjoy your times of meditation more deeply and richly. For some of you, though, here as I'm saying this, you're feeling convicted. But I don't want, the, but I don't want that conviction, neither does... Uh, in my judgment, the scripture is calling that conviction to go into a condemnation where you somehow walk out of here dragging your knuckles like, you know, I'm terrible because I, I don't have Bible reading and meditation in the liturgy of my life. My encouragement to you is to say, hey, this is the means of God's grace for you. So if you've not been availing yourself of it, I have good news. The Lord welcomes the prodigal back. He's the one that goes and gets the wayward sheep that left the fold. He's the father who jumps off the porch and pulls his, pulls his uh, tunic up and chases after the prodigal. He's a God who welcomes you in, welcomes you back with open arms because he is a God of comfort, wants to nourish your soul. So if prayer and scripture and meditation are devoid in your life, then this is the opportunity for you to say, you know what, I need to recalibrate here and avail myself of these means of grace. Let's move on. So if we don't... If we, if, if, if we don't pray, it's not about like, oh, I've disobeyed a rule. It's that, oh, I'm acting as though I don't need God. If I'm not praying in, in the scriptures, then I'm really relating to my life like he's an afterthought. This isn't something I wrote down because I'm like, oh, this will get him. I wrote that because I've, I've done that for like 47 years in various lengths period of time that are uh, tragic and uh, have brought a lot of suffering and mental anguish and it's embarrassing and we've all done that and so it's not about oh well, I broke the rules I'm not praying it's like no I need to relate to God like C.S. Lewis is talking about need is flowing out of me all the time and so how do I replenish my soul so <clears throat> This tree in Psalm 1, you'll notice that something's being worked into it. And that's the way that we want to think about prayer. It's not a formula to get things in our life to work out. It's a means of grace for God to work something in. You and I would do well to go for a walk and look at the birds and the flowers. 
Be like, you know what? God has taken care of all this stuff. He will take care of me. So what's being offered is the state of being. This Notice in the tree this poetic parallelism in, the, in this poem. It's used in Hebrew all the time. It's fairly obvious here. Strong, stable tree. Chaff blowing all over the place. Life, death. Stability, volatility. The circumstances, the wind is blowing, but I'm not moving anywhere. Over here, wherever the wind blows, that's where I'm going. Mentally, emotionally, physically, my life, I'm just, I'm blowing. This is the, this is the contrast that's given for us to sit and to contemplate uh, what is available for us. The stability of this tree being nourished or the deadness of the chaff. Now, it goes without saying that united to Christ, you and I are not the chaff. United to Christ by faith and grace alone. If you've been baptized into Christ's name and you believe and made a profession of faith, then you are not the chaff. In this uh, metaphor, you are the tree. And yet, we all have times and seasons where we live like the chaff. We feel like the chaff, blown around by life, blown around by circumstance. Just as anxious and worried and frustrated and sick uh, as, everyone, as, as everyone else in the office only we have an appointment on Sunday mornings at 10.30 that we keep that they don't. So something's gone askew if that's our life experience. Because what the means of grace is given to you and I for, uh, it's, it's given to us precisely so that we can enjoy experientially the things that we believe objectively. Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross in 33 AD under Pontius Pilate. It is forever written in human history. It cannot be reversed. The whole entire historical world agrees the tomb was empty. That is not a discussion. That's a historical fact. We can have discussions around why the tomb was empty, but the fact is it was empty. So if you and I as Christians believe those things objectively, all of this is to get that, those objective truths into our day-to-day experience uh, Experientially, in, in terms of joy and wisdom and love and generosity, as we begin to live out with joy our new humanity. If you look at uh, verse 3, you'll notice that the, the tree doesn't bear fruit all the time. And neither do we. It says it bears fruit in season. And it can be frustrating uh, to feel like, oh my goodness, I'm in this season where like just nothing is fruitful in my life and then have a friend you know here at redeemer or elsewhere or whatever and they're like hey how's it going and you're just like oh my goodness you seem to be living in perpetual harvest it's frustrating first of all they're not in perpetual harvest because nobody's in perpetual harvest but sometimes it can certainly feel that way when we feel like it's it we've been in a drought for some time so first of all notice that your life is not going to be fruitful perpetually you will bear fruit because of the indwelling power of the god of comfort you will And you will do it in season. Here's the other part of the good news. Even though your life will not be fruitful perpetually, notice the next line says, its leaf doesn't wither. That is perpetual. See, that's, to borrow from Dr. Tim Keller, that's being evergreen in the midst of sorrow and trial and difficult times. Will your life be fruitful perpetually? Absolutely not. But is there a hope and a joy and a strength that is available to you perpetually, to nourish you perpetually, to keep you from falling into the sorrow and darkness uh, perpetually? Is that available? It is. 
and I understand that in, in this room, all of us are on a spectrum of, well, let's call it a spectrum of mental health, from we all have struggles, every human does, all the way to, you know, could be debilitating struggle. Regardless of where you are in that, the truth of God's word uh, remains to be steadfast and, and real and available for you. No, you will not bear fruit all the time, but yes, the leaf won't wither. Yes, there is a nourishment uh, of, in God that's available for you, even in, even in the difficulties. And so I close with this. There's an Old Testament scholar, his name's Derek Kidner, and uh, he says this of this psalm. He says, The tree is not just a channel piping water unchanged from one place to the other, but it's a living organism that absorbs it to produce something else in due course, this fruit, this life, this proper kind um, in its time. So the good news for you, church, is that the goodness of God, this God of comfort, producing strength and joy in you, generosity in you, it is inevitable. Some of you may look in the mirror and be like, oh boy, I just do not feel as though there is any growth or any change. I feel like I'm the same person. If you are united to Christ, if you will just continually turn to him, even in your failure, which we all have, he will welcome you back, he will nourish you, and he will provide for you. It says in verse 3 that, that this person prospers. There's a prospering that's available for you and I. There's a prospering that's available for every believer. Imagine for a moment this text is being preached this Sunday morning. Imagine there's, an, there's a preacher in Syria and one in Ethiopia and someone in some rubble someplace hiding in the Ukraine and in China and in North Korea and the Sudan and in the ruins of Aleppo. I mean, just imagine that all around the globe right now, there's preachers somewhere saying to a church someplace, that if we just turn to God and rely on him, we will prosper. What does the, it, can they say that in those countries? My friends, they can't. Not if you define prosperity like southern Ontario people define it. But if you define prosperity the way that the, the, way that the Bible defines it. The buoyancy of the soul, the strength, the leaf that doesn't wither. Everything is burning down around you, but you are not. I pray by the grace of God... That as you pray and as you meditate, he would forge his peace, his strength in you. That like the tree, your leaf would not wither. Let's pray.